Ciao Michi, it's Alexa, and welcome to my podcast, a space to motivate and inspire you to make positive changes in your life. We talk everything, health, wellness, mindset, lifestyle, and more. Hello everyone, welcome back to the podcast. Today I have a special guest on here, his name is Tom Hines. Welcome everybody, Um, I'm Tom Hines, President, CEO of Capital Wealth Management in Connecticut. We're a wealth management firm specializing in retirement planning and estate planning uh, for all types of people, but focusing on those accumulating assets for retirement. But I'm more excited today to talk about not just the wealth part of wealth management, but the health and wellness aspect Mm. um, that I think would be important, uh, Alexa, for our audience. So even though my background is in wealth management, I spent a lifetime studying martial arts, meditation, health and wellness on my own. And if I can add something for your audience there today, would love to do it. Yes. Thank you for hopping on and for, you know, becoming vulnerable, sharing your story and sharing some of the tips and tools that you've learned along the way. And you're a very unique guest to our show uh, because I haven't had anyone like this on yet. A lot of the people who I've had on here are practicing healthcare gurus or you know acupuncturists reiki masters nutritionists um, nurses doctors and you are the first person who is working in corporate working full-time but also managing and balancing your life so when did your health and wellness journey begin thank you very much and great question i would say mine began from childhood in the sense that Growing up, I was a, at the time, a severe asthmatic. Mm. And looking back, it wasn't just that my parents were smokers. They were. So that certainly didn't help. Um, but also, I think for a lot of us, when you look back at what they call your family of origin, um, and I'm not going to try and get you know too preachy, but like a lot of people in health and wellness, I've read a lot of books on family of origin and the dynamics. So I would say in the case of my older sister and I, we helped raise our younger sister uh, who was mentally handicapped. Her chromosome was translocated at birth and that affected Amy. Mm-hmm. But we didn't know at the time, years later, um, even though my mom and dad did a great job, when you're raising a younger sibling who has many, many uh, disabilities, it can wear on you, but you don't know that at the time because that's all you've known. You know, So this might strike a chord with your audience that a lot of times people that have dealt with adversity within their own family, it's a very good sign of overcoming challenges. But later on, you might realize you have your own challenges, all right, as a result of having dealt with that when you were younger. So I'd say my first exposure was having asthma as a child and having overcome that. Mm -hmm. So what were some of the ways that you dealt with that? Because I know as a young kid it's it's hard you want to play sports you want to do things that all the other children are doing but your asthma gets in the way I I have someone in my family who experiences this themselves yeah so when I found out and keep in mind I grew up in the 1960s right so times were different and I would say that looking back and this is certainly some wisdom I can add for your audience we now know a lot more about asthma and the effects of both you know tree pollen and animals and dander, but also stress. So fortunately, my parents were very proactive about having me get involved in sports, so they never shied away. So 
I did play hockey. I did play lacrosse. I did play football. But what we learned was seasonally, if it was like ragweed and pollen in August, September in New England, I had to be careful of that because that would be a trigger. But also if people were smokers, I couldn't be around them. And of course today, which is so much healthier for the country, there's so much in the anti-smoking world, but you'd be surprised growing up in the 60s and 70s, it was still pretty common for people to smoke in restaurants, you know, and at bus stops. So I worked around it by one, staying active, two, of course, had a good doctor, you know, to monitor. But a lot of it, I realized, ended up being exertional and emotional. So if I went through some tough times in school, you know, pressure on grades or whatever, that would make things worse. So I had to realize as I got into college, and that was when I really fell into martial arts, that was the, that was the biggest thing for me was martial arts really helped calm me down. And that's became my 35-year journey, you know, studying under a Japanese master and all. So I went from a pretty average high school athlete to really into martial arts. And that's where I would tell people that really helped turn my life around. So I recognized that the asthma wasn't always going to be there. It was sometimes situational, sometimes emotional. And of course, it would be triggered at times by, you know, things like smoke and allergens, but not as much. So did you ever feel out of place or triggered by your family dynamics? Yes. Great question. I did. And even today, by the way, when I have clients in the wealth management field who have children or grandchildren that might have autism, they might be on the spectrum or they might be handicapped, I can really, really um, interact with them and empathize with them because I know the journey. So I'll give you a couple of great stories, Alexa. And again, for anyone, you know, in your, in your audience that either knows or grows up with this. So one of my longtime friends, we've known each other since the fourth grade. So we're going on, you know, literally 50 plus years. And he and I played lacrosse together. He told me a year or two ago when we were connecting up, he said, you know, the first time I met you when you were eight or nine years old, you were really nervous about having me come over your house mm. because of your younger sister. And of course, I didn't remember that, but it stuck in his mind. He only lived about five houses away. And he said, I still remember you were very nervous about having me come over your house. Now, in our generation, you know, everybody hung out at everyone's houses. You know, everyone walked up and down the street. You just basically stopped in. So I thought that was interesting. He remembered that moment. And another friend of mine, recalled something similar um, if they came over and my sister Amy was around. So again, I didn't know at the time, but I was already showing signs of being different, being concerned, being afraid of how they might interact with Amy and vice versa. So do you think that between the smoking in the house and the restaurants and then all this stress on your system, is that what really helped manifest that asthma? I think so. I mean, looking back, when I got out of high school, I went to college, University of Connecticut. Mm-hmm. Um, when there was no longer any smoking around, my health got a lot better quickly, meaning you know there was no um, outside influence in terms of that. And the second benefit was when I got out of the household and got into martial arts. So think of this as sort of a double benefit. You know, getting into a new environment in college was exciting, um, and but being away from smoke was a big part of it, but also being away from the stressors, you know, of a younger sister. Mm -hmm. And I'll go into that in a moment. 
So yes, it's certainly, I noticed a lot when I went to college that all of a sudden I felt even healthier than I had the prior couple years, you know, living at home in high school. And the same thing with my older sister. She recognized the same thing. So I have some younger audiences or audience members on here that are around that age where they're just going into college or they're, they are in high school. Um, So, you know, when, like, what advice do you have for them who are maybe going through a similar experience as you, where they feel trapped at home, there's nowhere to go, they have a sibling that's disabled, they just want to fit in and, and try to understand why they were given all this? Yeah, absolutely, and I'd love to share. So looking back, you know, the old expression, if I knew then what I know now, Yeah. <laughs> right? Um, there's a few things I would love to share. Number one, um, for some of you that are probably more optimistic, this may not resonate, but some of you might develop, and I say, I underline the word might, uh, might develop unintentionally what they call the victim, you know, personality, where you became a victim. Now, keep in mind, in my sister Amy's case, she was born that way, right? There was nothing we could do about it. So make sure you're aware with you, and your friends might tell you this, your friends, or if you're in any relationship, people might tell you, don't go down the path of developing that victim mentality, even though, even though I'm not a, you know, not a therapist, I'm not in health and wellness, it's very natural to want to go down that path of why me, you know, why am I the victim? But that'll be a lifelong self-defeating message that doesn't help you. So number one, let's underline, you know, don't play the victim card, even though your situation may be different and it may be unique. The second thing I would urge everyone for me, it became martial arts, but whether it's meditation, um, I also do Bikram yoga, whatever you can find, you know, whether it's running, right, whatever you like to do, have some element, some outlet of health and wellness that has maybe a cardiovascular benefit to it. I'm not saying you have to run triathlons, you know, you don't have to sit there and, and do 26 miles a week, but I would say you want to develop something that's physically good for you, you know, that you can work on that can be a stress release. Mm -hmm. And then the third thing, believe it or not, more so now, if you reach out, there's probably more and more support groups out there of people who might have some of those same issues. When I grew up, you didn't really have that, but you might look for other people, you know, in your area that have that. So number one, don't play the victim. Number two, uh, find something for health and wellness you know, that's good for you physically. And then number three, uh, if you can find some online support groups and reading, by the way, books about all these different things. There are so many books, you know, online or audibles you can listen to today that are, I mean, all you have to do is one quick Google search and you'll find plenty of different titles, you know, that might strike, um, strike you as an interesting area to do more exploration. Those are the three things I can think of. Top of mind. What are some of those favorite books of yours, by the way, since we just brought that up (laughs) and we're both authors? Yeah. So we'll, um, one of these is actually on mindfulness. Anyone that has ever read or heard, and again, I have no connection with this gentleman. I don't know him. I saw him speak once in New York City not too long ago before COVID hit. But if you have a chance and and if you haven't heard him before, John Kabat-Zinn, I'll spell his name. Um, J-O-H-N, obviously, and then Cabot, K-A-B-A-T dash Z-I-N-N. Um, he's, he started a mindfulness-based stress reduction institute 
um, in the 1970s. And I may, again, I may sound like a commercial for him, but I have no, you know, no financial tie-ins. But if you look him up, back in the 1970s, he noticed in, um, you know, in America where he grew up in uh, Massachusetts that there was a need for people to start to reduce stress. Now, remember, that's before the iPhone, right? That's before technology really took over. So he's been doing this for well over 50 years. It's MBSR, it's called M as in Mary, B as in boy, S as in Steve, R as in Roger. And I found that getting some of his um, audio tapes early on and now, you know, his books um, are really, really excellent examples of mindfulness. And just to share with the audience what I interpret mindfulness to be, you know, it's sort of a daily awareness of you, what's going on in your life, you know, your friends, your family, and being attuned to your emotional reactions, your knee-jerk reactions, and your thought processes so that you're actually aware moment to moment of what's going on in your life. It doesn't mean you won't have stress. It doesn't mean you won't have difficult days. But if you're mindful of these things, you'll be able to see a path, you know, a light at the end of the tunnel, as opposed to going through like sort of a you know, electron bouncing around randomly every day, just trying to put out fires. So John Kabat-Zinn, well-known author. I just think he'd be one good example of mindfulness-based reading. Awesome. And if there's another takeaway from him, what would that takeaway be? Yeah, the takeaway um, is, and he has a great um, book early on called The Full Catastrophe Living. I would make a note of that, Full Catastrophe. and um, his point was all of us at some point, regardless of our family of origin, mm-hmm. are going to go through challenging times. We just don't know when, right? You might have yeah. the first 20 years might be fantastic. And then God forbid you come down with cancer, right? Mm-hmm. Or the first 15 years might be horrendous. And then you meet the greatest person in your life, your soulmate. We don't know the order, right? That this happens, right? So his point was, if you develop uh, a system for yourself, and this is why the full catastrophe, he talked about, you know, life hitting you with mortgage payments and rent payments and college student loans and your boss wants this deadline met tomorrow. All of these things can be overwhelming. And yet he walks you through how we deal with it, you know, the fight or flight response. So bottom line, the one takeaway is whether it's his book or someone like his, you can develop your own methodology for dealing with life stressors and learn to read your own body signals so that you understand, you know, when you're stressed, what's your outlet? You know, I don't want to, as an example, I have a friend that said, okay, I'm not going to, you know, eat chocolate anymore. When I feel stressed, I'm going to go for a walk, or I'm not going to do things that are bad for my health and wellness. Uh, I'm not going to drink, you know, 10 cups of coffee to make that deadline because that's going to raise, you know, my blood pressure. So you become aware of what your coping mechanisms are to make sure that you don't put yourself further down that path of danger. Does that, does that help a bit? Uh, yeah, definitely. Um, it's funny you say all this. I, I'm taking notes for the, for the show notes, but I've also experienced a lot of these different things as well. Um, I've been working on myself so much during quarantine, so much during this pandemic, especially in the beginning of the pandemic. And I also started to notice that there were so many triggers of mine that were causing me stress. And it was between emotional triggers. It was between physical triggers, like just triggers. Maybe someone will say something and it would just trigger something. Or during the beginning of 
you know, this whole entire COVID-19 scare, we didn't know what this virus was. And someone who had just gotten out of chemotherapy yourself and getting cancer myself, you know, I was like, that's it. This is like life again. I'm like, so there is a huge possibility that I might get this crazy virus. If I step outside, like we didn't know what this was, I'll step outside and I'll get so sick that I'll die because they're saying people, you know, are just dying left and right. I'm like, oh, great. (laughs) I can't do this again. So I was getting so many triggers and, you know, it's just writing them down and seeing them on paper and then trying to find tools that are going to really help you get out of that. Um, like a lot of different somatic work and kind of like even doing tapping, like bilateral tapping, that's what's really yes. helped me too, has just gotten me out of that fight or flight and back into that state of, mm. you know, homeostasis and into my parasympathetic mode. So yeah, I, de- I definitely agree with all of John's methodologies, methodologies, excuse me, and your insight from it too. But um, I want to ask you, How did you choose to find this outlet with martial arts? What led you to that specific type of, I guess, recreational athlete? Or were you on a team? How did it work? Yeah, thank you. And that's been such a big game changer for me in a positive way. And I'll give you two quick stories. One of them, I recently reconnected on Cape Cod. I visited my first martial arts instructor ever. So I'll start with that. So when I was 15 years old, um, you know, got in a school fight unintentionally. <laughs> you know, it wasn't horrible. It was more of a damage to my ego than my body. But a couple of bruises later, my mom at the time said, you know what? You have to learn how to defend yourself. And so she sought out on her own, probably through, and this will sound really funny to your audience, but there was a thing called Yellow Pages years ago where you actually went to the phone book, right? And you looked I it up. I remember this. So yeah. I'm, I'm cracking up, but my mom looked up, um, I'm going to say it was either the newspaper or the Yellow Pages, but mm-hmm. she looked up karate schools in downtown Framingham, Mass, where I grew up. Those of you who know that Boston, it's about 20 miles west of Boston. She found this great Okinawan karate school. So she you know, enrolled me in there, and that began, it began my lifelong journey. At this time, there was a junior instructor named Clark Jones teaching, uh, let's say, the, the people from, let's say, age 10 age 18. And so there was like a youth class. And so I did that for a couple of years, got up to about green belt. And all of a sudden I was off to college. Yeah. But that started me. So number one, it was something new. Number two, there was meditation at the beginning of the class because you would have to bow in. By the mm-hmm. way, and some of you might misunderstand this too. It's not a religious thing. You know, we weren't being taught to be Buddhist monks. But when you bow in, you're respecting what they call the dojo or the training hall. Um, those of you that do yoga, it's like when you walk into the yoga studio, you know, you have a different mindset. You, you lower your voice, you turn off your cell phone, you know, you have a respect for the area around you. So that began my journey. And then I'll wait for the other question for you. But then when I went to University of Connecticut, I, I found a different style of martial arts that happened to be even more broadly taught. But, um, and I'll get into that in a moment. But yeah, so Okinawan... Weichiru is what started me on it, and then eventually got into Japanese-style Shotokan at college. Mm. So what's the difference between those two? Like, walk the listeners through exactly what you do from the minute you walk into the dojo to the minute you leave. Sure. And this is, by the way, a great analogy 
for um, anyone that wants to think about taking up any, any, you know, any martial art of any type. So when you, as the way it was explained to me when I was a green belt, now, by the way, to give the audience some background, I'm a fourth degree black belt, and I have competed in world tournaments and all. So I went from a beginner all the way to, you know, the highest level. The first thing you recognize is everyone in our style tries to get to class about, believe it or not, 15, 20 minutes early. Mm -hmm. Number one, you're going to change into your uniform, your gi, pardon me. And number two, you're going to go there because you typically bow into the dojo, a traditional, Mm -hmm. you know, Japanese bow. So you're setting up yourself, your mindset for leaving all your problems outside the door, as they say. So when I walk in, and again, for some of you that might have done, you know, ballet or dance or something like that, same idea. When I walk in, I'm forgetting all those challenges, and I'm going to focus the next hour or 90 minutes on improving my health and my wellness and getting into the what they call the karate spirit of the class, if that makes sense. So number one, arrive early. Number two, you know, get there early to stretch. And when you bow in, you're really focusing on the class at hand, not all the things that are piled up in your brain that you have to get to. Mm. And <clears throat> what did it mean for you to enter the dojo? Like, what did it mean for you to actually tune into yourself because you originally started this for self-defense just because of your own ego you mentioned but now it seems like you've transitioned into doing this for your mind and your soul correct yes so what it meant for me and again i'll use the analogy for those of you that are um uh are religious and maybe want to you know pray every week or every day which is also another form of meditation So just like walking into a church or a temple in our world, in the Shotokan world, and probably in most styles, but I'll speak for what I know, when you bow in, you're really going into a sacred place in terms of, you know, training and well-being. So like anything else, you lower your voice, you look for respect. We tend to bow to our senior instructors and, you know, senior students right away, showing respect for their wisdom. So when you walk into the dojo, in my sense, it was a special place of healing because now I'm working on me. You know, I'm working on my technique. I'm working on getting better. I'm not worried about the rest of the world. I'm not worried about missed assignments, not worried about parents or siblings because your mindset is focused on the class at hand. And the class is broken into three parts. Mm. Um, After you warm up and do some basic stretching, you'll do basic punching and kicking. That's called basics. And then you'll work on what we call sparring or fighting techniques. And then you work on kata and kata is those graceful forms that you see oftentimes in like, for instance, the karate kid or Cobra Kai, if you saw Cobra Kai on uh, Netflix at all. And kata is another expression of your own body doing self-defense techniques. So the class is broken into thirds and each part of that you're focused on getting better at your technique, but, This is important. The intent of getting better isn't to destroy someone, isn't to hurt someone, you know, isn't to be macho. It's to fine tune your technique, just like if you were uh, um, at the piano, you know, and you're playing countless hours in the piano and you want to become, you know, a master pianist. It's the same thing. You're trying to get better at something and perfect it, but it's really at the same time you're perfecting your own character. So 
a lot of physical exertion, but then at times we would take a break and you could meditate during class, you know, if you had to take a break and sit for a few minutes. And so, yeah, you walked into a very special place and a dojo can be a gym. It doesn't have to be, you know, a special training hall, but for our style, it was very important to go there and leave all your troubles at the door and really, really focus on improving yourself. So I have two questions, actually, um, to go off of everything you just said. The first one, were there times that you saw this parallel, that you experienced this sense of calm and peace and connecting with your body in the dojo, but then in your personal life as well? Yes. Um, excellent question. The first time it was brought to my attention by my original instructor, and he had said, you'll know when you're advancing your level of concentration, when you can go a whole class, let's say 60 minutes at that time, without thinking about I'm tired or when is class over, you know, when do we bow out? In other words, when you could go in and focus for a whole hour on whatever the instructor was teaching you um, and not think about when is class over, because I'm sure this can relate to all your listeners. We've all been in boring classes, you know, in college or graduate school, where let's say the lecturer wasn't the most fascinating, and you're looking at your watch, right? Like, oh my gosh, can't wait to get out of here. Well, obviously, we want the opposite of that. Mm -hmm. So when you're so enthralled and excited about what you're doing in martial arts that you didn't think about time. And before you know it, class was over, right? Yeah. So that was the first level of learning. And again, I'll make the analogy, whether it's ballet or dancing or drama, you're so into it that the time flies and you don't even know what's going on. Mm -hmm. That was sort of step one. And step two is you develop an awareness that your body actually craves this type of working out. It wants the exercise. It wants the meditation. It wants the well-being. So that's a second phase when you realize this is really good for your soul. And you really start to make it, in my case, it was a daily routine. For some people, it might be, you know, three times a week. But all of a sudden, it morphed from, like you said, being a self-defense mechanism to a lifelong way of living, which incorporates healthy living, you know, healthy eating, uh, being kind to others. And I'll, I want to give you and your audience members a very interesting synopsis. So at the end of each karate class in our style, we would repeat five, you know, key aspects, what they call uh, the dojo-kun or the belief of the dojo. And keep in mind... These are not religious, all right? So I want to make sure people don't confuse that. And they were, in this order, seek perfection of character, be faithful, endeavor, respect others, and refrain from violent behavior. And the reason was our founder in Japan uh, many, many years ago, um, when he came up with these, the dojo-kun, it was the idea that, notice, none of those things, seek perfection of character, right, be faithful, endeavor, respect others, refrain from violent behavior, has nothing to do with how good you are. It doesn't say, I'm going to become a world-class uh, martial arts champion. It doesn't say, I'm going to become you know, the next Bruce Lee or the next Chuck Norris. But it's about perfecting your character. That was the goal yeah. of the Protocon style, right? And so whatever style people want to take up, all I'm saying is there should be some belief system you know, mm -hmm. that you're trying to go there to improve your character, it's not about how much money you make, it's not about your job, not about how many um, you know, social media connections you have. It 
really doesn't involve any of that. It's about getting better as your yeah. character. Yeah, I even noticed this when I'm practicing yoga, especially yin yoga. Yin yoga really teaches me to just tune into my breath and relax. And sometimes when I'm off of the mat, I'll start to remember that too. I'm like, no, you have to really center yourself. Alexa, what's this trigger? What's causing this? Right. Like, how can we center back into your body in the same way that you're doing with yoga? Um, so that's awesome. And I feel like that's a lot with any different hobby or any different soul touching tasks that we might do on the day-to-day basis like even yes. painting i don't know if you can see behind me i have a painting that i painted here yes like like i get so lost in painting too so it's it's a very meditative state that i get into when i'm doing these things that my soul is just calming down um into um and then that second question and I had it for you, you know, sometimes it's difficult, even with me, to get on my mat and to calm down and center down. And I don't always have perfect yoga sessions. And I'm right. always, you know, I'm trying to strive for perfection, but no one is perfect. Um, and I'll be stressed out and I can't tune into my body and I can't tune into my breath because I'm thinking about something else. So yeah. when you have those instances when you're practicing karate, how do you get out of that? Yeah, and by the way, this is a great message for the whole audience. In yeah. one of my um, coaching programs that I'm in, this is for entrepreneurs, and I credit um, Dan Sullivan of Strategic Coach for this one, but they talk about it's progress, not perfection. So yeah. in everything in your life, um, I would urge everyone that it's really about progress. Now, you might think, and this is important, they go, wait a minute, isn't the goal you know, to be perfect? And I would argue if you're going to be – you know, a gymnast, right, for the Olympics, yes, you're going to go for the perfect 10. If you're going to be um, a skier, if you're going to be a violin player, at that level, yes, there is something they're all striving for that's far above what I would call, you know, the average person. So that elite group around the world, if you want to be a chess master, right, you want to be able to beat the number one, then you are striving for near perfection. But I would say the pressure for all of us to think of that as the ideal is wrong. We want to think about progress every day. Mm. So I'll give you an example, Alexa, that may help. So years ago, I remember I went to one of these karate classes and I just, you know, had just had a bad grade on a college exam and I just wasn't in the mind, right mindset. Yeah. The instructor knew that. And at the end of class, it wasn't just me. They sat us down and said, look, every day, if you show up here to class, you're trying to get better. Yeah. So the, the fact that today... Your mind, they call it monkey mind sometimes, you know, in meditation, right? Your mind is bouncing around like a monkey. Mm -hmm. But the point is, if you first of all recognize it, that is a huge victory. So when you told me there are days when you want to get on the yoga mat and you can't, number one, recognize, okay, I've got monkey mind going on. So now that's first step is awareness. The second thing is, what do I do, right, to get myself out? And I would argue you can experiment with different things. One day it might be they have like walking meditation, you know, where you literally, if you're trapped inside because of a snowstorm, you can um, Google this and look at like walking meditation. You might try that one day rather than just sitting, right? Because mm -hmm. sometimes sitting and breathing works great when you're calm, but when you're agitated, it's very tough to go from an agitated state to sitting like a Zen monk, right? Yeah. <laughs> so try walking meditation. You might try breathing exercises. Everyone that knows I'll do it here. You know, the first breathing exercise of Bikram yoga, as I'm demonstrating, right, is this one when you lift your arms up. So you might oh, try yes. that. 
right? The first one, big inhale. All I'm saying to your audience is try different things because for each person, there's going to be something that will work for you. So if I told you it will work for me, the next nine people might be, oh, that's not working. But they might say, wait a minute. I love when I stand and I do this. You know, that works for me. So find your own rhythm, but don't be frustrated that right away you don't solve it on day one because the good news is the younger you are, you've got your whole life to practice this, right? So I look at it as now when something like that triggers me, I don't go into the old default mode of, oh my gosh, here we go again. I go into, oh, here's another lesson for me to learn, right? So rather than get yourself down about a failure, you go, this is a good test for uh, my meditation, for my breathing, for my walking. And it's okay if that day you don't pass it, you'll guess what? I have the next test again tomorrow, the next day. So rather than look at what you didn't do, look forward to the next time you face that same demon. And eventually your attitude will change to where one day you beat the demon and you're like, oh my gosh, I found what works for me. Yeah. So that's what I would, I would want to give for some, some wisdom. Love that. And do you feel like this is translating into your work right now? Or walk us through exactly what you do on a day-to-day now. You do so many different things. <laughs> yeah, thank you. So a lot of my day, believe it or not, as I'm helping promote the book that you and I uh, wrote, you wrote your own through New Degree Press, yeah. right? I'm promoting that and the podcast because what I end up doing is I end up buying, um, when an advisor retires, I end up buying their client base from them. And so I work with their clients. So imagine someone 70 years old that's worked for 50 years and now they want to get out of the business and they call it monetizing. They want to monetize those client relationships. Mm -hmm. I'll buy that and my team, I have a bunch of certified financial planners underneath me, a bunch of great 20 and 30 year olds who really work hard. So now I'll buy the practice and I'll work with a few key clients, but the rest of the clients we share, you know, as a team. And that seems to work really well. So that's sort of my day job. But along the way, I also help teach martial arts at night with a friend of mine who has his own karate club. So I love when I leave work at five, I enter that new world again where I bow into a dojo and now I'm an instructor and I'm teaching the white belts, which are the beginners, you know, the green belts and the brown belts. And that's another fun thing for me because now I have the wisdom after looking back over 35 years of what can I share with them. So a lot of my day is spent on wealth management. We do watch the stock market, obviously. But also a lot of the day for me is grooming and training the advisors underneath me and sharing with them the wisdom you know, of what I've learned on how to deal with clients, how to take care of their retirement money, how to help plan you know, for, their, uh, for their parents and grandparents who someday will need that help as well. Mm-hmm. But so- I can share with you where it helped a lot. Mm-hmm. There were many times when, when the market goes through a bad cycle, you know, and all the values come down, that clients would be upset, naturally, that they're losing money. And over the years, I've had many clients, when they got upset, I learned to have that peace of mind where you take the, you know, the in-breath and the out-breath, and you say to yourself, they're not mad at me, they're mad at their portfolio going down. And you've really learned to de-stress, right, so that you're not sitting there taking all the pressure yourself but you're realizing they're watching their value of their retirement go down temporarily. They're feeling the stress themselves. And I learned not to take that on to myself because that can cause another layer of stress. They project it onto you. Correct. 
Correct. Yeah. Um, there was a, there have been certain circumstances that I've been under two where people just project everything on me. I'm like, whoa, where is this coming from? <laughs> and I, I'll get stressed for a second, but then I go back to my yoga and I'm like, okay, no. Like I tried to practice um, the four pillars of yoga and like just ground myself in that sense. And even, you know, I mean, like I'm right now I'm studying to be a yoga instructor to get my yoga certification, but um, have been practicing for five years. And I mean, also looking back into scripture too, like scripture really helps balance me and, and set me straight and kind of humble me down to God or source or energy and just that overall nirvana and bliss. Um, so I definitely agree with that. And one last thing before we leave, um, what is your book about? Like you mentioned before, we're, we're both writing books. We're both wrote books with New Decree Press. Uh, my book is Power to Persevere. You all probably know that by now. But Tom, what is your title of your book? Yes, thank you. So mine's called The Zen of Business Acquisitions. So you might immediately say, wait a minute, what does Zen have to do with business acquisitions? And the reason why I wanted to combine the Eastern culture of Zen and the Western culture of business mm -hmm. was the fact that uh, a lot of people, when they get into the business world, you know, whether you're an auditor, you know, whether you're in mergers and acquisitions, whether you're a stockbroker, wealth advisor, anything like that, there often is a lot of chaos, you know, in the business world, right? There's the cutting edge technology, um, DoorDash and Airbnb just went public this week, right? And everyone yeah. knows. So that's a big deal. So when you think about business sometimes and you think about the very um, – hectic, fast-paced world, that's what I used to think of, oh my gosh, that's going to be this sort of calamity and putting out one fire after another. And then the word Zen, when I married the word Zen with that, was no, it doesn't have to be hectic every day. It doesn't have to be putting out fires. And so we might think in the beginning that if you're juggling 20 things and your boss wants you to do this and you know your boyfriend or girlfriend wants you to do that and your parents want, all of a sudden, it may seem like, wow, I'm busy, I'm juggling a lot, but I would argue the Zen aspect comes in where you break things down in their simplicity and you take one thing at a time and you focus on that and you do the best you can. So rather than try to do three things at once, I would argue in the book I talk about this, it may be take one thing a day that you want to really do well. And let's say you're working on a project and you go, I'm going to focus on that project. And that's okay. I'm going to take no interruptions for a few hours because really what I think today more than ever, we're being pulled apart in so many directions, yeah. but we don't have time to focus. So I interviewed some of the top talent in the mergers and acquisitions field and asked them what they did successfully to learn how to grow their companies without going crazy. Mm -hmm. So the Zen aspect combined my personal journey of martial arts with the idea of growing my business. Mm -hmm. And I try to have that collaboration. At the end, I have a chapter called How to Hack This Book. Uh, that Professor Eric Custer told me, right, I should have in there. Yeah. It's great. So I cover all the wisdom in one chapter, and I have a great quote at the end from the Dalai Lama about your health and wellness. Mm -hmm. And that, to me, when I came across that quote at the end of my research, even though it has nothing to do with business, it has everything to do with life. Yeah. And so that, to me, was the best quote of all in the book. 
I have a book by him, but it's not on this bookshelf in front of me. But I, I believe I have a quote from him in my book as well. Or if not my book, it's, I've written it somewhere in one of my posts on Instagram or um, on my blog. So yeah, I totally agree with that. And, and who, um, who are the best people that should be, or who's, who's the audience for this book? Should young people like me read it? Should people who have been in the field for a long time read it? Who would you want to read this book? Yeah, so I would say, and by the way, I'm going to, if you don't mind, I'll read that quote from the Dalai Lama, because I think this would resonate, and that's why I'll answer your question in a moment, but I found this fascinating. Mm -hmm. So it said the Dalai Lama, when asked what surprised him most about humanity, he said the following, man, because he sacrifices his health in order to make money, then he sacrifices money to recuperate his health. And then he is so anxious about the future that he does not enjoy the present. Yeah. The result being that he does not live in the present or the future. He lives as if he is never going to die, and then he dies having never really lived. Yep. Isn't that great? So what mm-hmm. I want to share with people is, so even though my book is about acquisitions, I would argue if you want to get some philosophy, every chapter begins with a quote. Uh, a a quote from either martial arts or a Zen monk or something about what can we learn. And so if it's an easy read, if you want to learn about a little bit of martial arts along the way and business, but in the end, it's for anyone that's a thirst for knowledge of how the Eastern culture can help you in this Western world, let's say, of trying to get your career started and grow Mm -hmm. your business. But bottom line, if you just go to the chapter of how to hack this book, I interview some very top people in my career, and they share their success stories. And one of them, Ron Carson, talks about how his parents, who owned a farm in Nebraska in the 1980s, he grew up as a farmer, they went bankrupt because the FDIC had to take over all these loans. And he said, had that not happened, he would never have morphed into one of the the best wealth managers in the country because of a severe challenge he had as a teenager helping his parents you know, with that bankruptcy. Mm-hmm. So again, some of the biggest challenges in our lives allow us to rise to the level that we need to be to overcome those. Exactly. 100% agree. Just got the chills. Love that. <laughs> Excellent. So where can people find you and connect with you? Yeah. So obviously on Amazon, you know, we know you can find the book on his Amazon. Mm-hmm. Um, on my email, it's my name, Tom Hine, T-O-M-H-I-N-E, at capital C-A-P-I-T-A-L-W-M.com. So it's Capital Wealth Management in Glastonbury. And then the firm has, you know, Facebook, Instagram, all that stuff is there. But really our website is www.capitalwm.com. And those are the probably easiest places to find me. And in the end, um, if I can share any other wisdom with the audience about your careers, because in the end, I would argue, looking back, it's not how much you accumulate over time, you know, that's part of your goal. It's your journey, mm-hmm. it's your friendships. But also I argue at the end of the rainbow, when you get to that part of your life, you want to look back and say, do I have my health and wellness as well? Because it doesn't matter if you've got a thousand friends and tons of money, but your health, you know, is in the toilet. That doesn't do you any good. And the people around you, frankly, aren't going to want to be around you if your if your health is always, you know, dragging you down. So along the journey of building your wealth, you know, building your friendships and building your family, you want to have another lane here, another lane that says, you know what, I have to continually 
work on my health and wellness. So along the way, I'm not waiting for one big point to celebrate, but I'm celebrating my life every day. Every time I do a yoga class, every time I go to church, whatever it is, I don't want you to wait 10 years to celebrate. I want you to celebrate it every day in your own special way. Without your health, you have nothing. (laughs) Correct. Correct. All righty. Well, thank you so much for coming on and for talking to us about your book, about your experience in life, and just how to stay zen. (laughs) Thank you so much. It was wonderful being with your audience. And uh, any feedback, I'd love to share with them at the right time. But have a great day. All right. Ciao.